Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Andy J Podcast. The Andy J Podcast. The Andy J Podcast. Now I'm so excited to welcome my very special guest for the whole show. He's a world-renowned explorer, a writer, a photographer, a man who has been on our TV screens for a very long time doing incredibly challenging things. I'm a little bit in awe. It's the brilliant Levinson Wood. How are you doing, Levinson? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? Well, well when I look, <laughs> Levinson, when I look at your achievements, your CV, the things you've done, let's just say in the last five years, never mind your career and your life, I kind of go, hmm, yeah, there's a man that fits a lot in. <laughs> well, yeah, it's been a wild ride. What can I say? Um, Lots of uh, lots of travelling. Lot of lot, you know. Been very fortunate to um, to see a different portion of the world and um, document my sort of findings along the way. If I if I wasn't acutely aware of how you looked, Levinson, and and, if, and also if I hadn't watched your shows, read your books, and so on, and I just looked at this incredible roll call of achievements, I would assume you were a very old man, a sort of <laughs> Serrano fine style. You know, he's obviously done this over decades and decades and decades, but you're not even forty, for goodness' sake. Well, I sometimes feel quite old when I wake up on a Saturday morning. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that makes me slightly relieved. Look, we've we've got so much to get through, and I am acutely aware that even though we have an hour together, that is simply not enough time to to kind of dive into each of your various different activities, your mad adventures, the things that you've achieved and done. But of course, one of the things we're going to talk about, you've got out a new book out, The Art of Exploration, which is lessons in curiosity, leadership and getting things done. So I want to talk about that in a little bit. But before we get on to that, let's just paint the picture of you and your life. Let's talk about how it all how it all came about, Levison, because I'm always fascinated sure. with explorers because you're all, if you don't mind me saying so, I've met a few of you now, you're all two things, utterly captivating and also wired slightly differently. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about that. I think there's definitely, I mean, the clues in the title of, of my new book, I guess, Curiosity. Um, I've all, you know, I was a curious kid and I've always had a fascination with the world beyond my own doorstep, I guess. And I just take a great pleasure in seeing the world with my own eyes, not necessarily, you know, uh, accepting the given truth on what we sort of see and hear in the news and actually hopefully reporting back from places that a lot of people might never get to see themselves, you know, sort of most remote places and communities in the world. And, and that is what I find fascinating and it. And it's a real joy and a, and a privilege to be able to go to those sorts of places and, um, and experience them firsthand. Well, you, you step into territories that I would sort of suggest Joe Public, I'm talking about myself, would ordinarily look at and consider them to automatically just be a bit intimidating and a bit frightening. I'm talking Iraq, Afghanistan, Sudan, and so on. You have been fearless in where you have gone. And and I'm assuming part of that is a sense of adventure. Part of it is what you've done with the army. But Levison, can we start at the beginning? You know, you're born and raised in Staffordshire. Both your parents are teachers, I believe. You have a brother. That's right. And I do, yeah. none of that so far leads to, well, this guy's going to go on crazy expeditions in his life. You know, that, that all just <laughs> sounds kind of 2.4, pretty standard. Where did it all start with you? Well, like I say, I, I was very fortunate to have two uh, parents who were both teachers. Um, they instilled in me this, this innate curiosity and um, a deep respect for learning um, and reading. I, I was a bit of a bookworm when I was a kid. And um I was just fascinated by history and geography and other places. And um, growing up in a quite a provincial sort of little village in, in North Staffordshire, I, I was just really desperate to sort of escape a little bit and see what was, was out there. So I did what a lot of young people do, where, you know, when they're sort of uh, in in the latter part of their teenage years and go around a very cliche gap year. And I went off to Thailand and India and places like that and 
didn't do anything particularly spectacular, but it, it gave me this this sort of feeling of independence and, and desire to go and push the boundaries. And, and so every year since I was 18, I just went on, I guess, more and more, um, for me at least, you know, groundbreaking trips. And, and, and it was those early sort of trips that were formative. And, and so when I was 21, I hitchhiked across the Middle East, uh, and that was a pretty seminal year that was 2003 which um was the year of the iraq war of course and um and, and actually going to places like that whether it's the middle east or afghanistan um at that age you know i look back and think well you know maybe i was a bit reckless but actually what it taught me was that even in places where there is you know very difficult circumstances people are people and actually they will look after you and there's incredible there's an incredible sense of hospitality and warmth that you that you find in places where people don't often meet foreigners or tourists and so I'm not advocating sort of war tourism here of course but what I mean is that there are a lot of people that, that they're not interested in politics they just they just want to get on with their own lives and I think that's a story that needs telling. Do you know, this is, it's so fascinating to hear you say that, Levison, because one of the things that I think is very apparent in, in actually all of your TV shows, I'm sure our listeners are familiar with at least one of them. I mean, they've been all over the world, for goodness sake, thanks to the, the power of the Discovery Network and, and various others. But one of the things that I think is is so apparent is you have personally been welcomed into homes and, and places by individuals all over the world where you just kind of think, wow, I mean, we wouldn't do that over here. We just, we, we don't seem to be that welcoming. We we all have a, a bit of a guard up when it comes to just a complete random stranger from nowhere. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. I mean, what, one of my favourite memories was on my Nile journey back in 20, um, 2013, 2014. Um, I was walking, you know, the length of the Nile and I was going through some really, really remote villages on the banks of, um, of the Nile in Sudan in particular. And there is an incredible sense of hospitality in that country. And I was actually getting slowed down on my, on my sort of walking schedule. I, was, I, was, I needed to get to the Egyptian border in time for Ramadan because my guides were, wanted to go home, of course. So every day that we were sort of walking along the, the Nile, you know, the, the villagers would come out and they'd offer their homes and they'd say, please stay for a few days and teach my kids English and uh, they, they were incredibly welcoming. So we had to actually come to a compromise with my Bedouin guides and actually every other day walk like away from the villages across the desert just to avoid being slowed down, which I know sounds a bit ungrateful, but it was the only way that we'd make it. One day, however, um, I think we must, we must be about a mile away from the nearest village and um, we were making our, you know, our fire in, in the desert and a bunch of these villagers just came over to us and said, what are you doing? Why are you staying out here in the desert and not coming into our homes? And one guy was so annoyed, he stormed off and he came back half an hour later. He carried his bed on his head Goodness and said, if you're not going into my home, my home is coming to you. I mean, it's just remarkable, isn't it? That's, I mean, that's incredible. And, and what a lovely, generous culture, actually. You- exactly, and it's that sense of warmth and hospitality. You wouldn't, you just probably wouldn't get that in a village. In sort of sorry. <laughs> I mean, I would struggle to get my bed on my head. I'll be honest with you. That <laughs> I'm not sure I could carry anything on my head, actually, but certainly not a bed. But to do that for a stranger, and and actually to be affronted that you're not sort of seeking their hospitality, accepting their hospitality. That, I mean, that says an awful lot about, I mean, it, it, is that ingrained in the culture? Is that something that, that they are brought up to do? Welcome strangers in, uh, share your life, share your fortune. Is, is, that, is that sort of part of their DNA? It is, it is. And um, I think I found that in some of the most unlikely places, or, or for me, unusual places, places like Afghanistan. There's, there is a code of hospitality in, in Afghanistan, actually. It's called Pashtunwali. And it's a tribal code where if you find, if, if a guest comes to you asking for hospitality, you have a duty to take that person in and defend them, even against your own neighbors. So as a 22-year-old, I hitchhiked all the way from Nottingham to India once. Uh, along the ancient Silk Road, and I went through places like uh, Iran and Afghanistan, and I, you know, I was met with nothing but incredible welcomes, and, and, and that stayed with me because it's, it's a really important message to tell the world. You know, it's not just about the war and the conflict and, and the poverty and everything else that we hear about so much. It's actually, you know, these are normal people, real people living and uh, who just want to get on with their lives. Mostly, it's so heartwarming to hear this, actually. But but also, I still think you're staggeringly brave because. 
you you sort of step out into the unknown. Yes, you had a wonderful experience and, and you were met with wonderful humans. But to my knowledge, your understanding of the local language is, is not fluent. You know, it's you, you can't sort of just step over there and go, well, it's fine. I can just chat away to anyone. How, how do you manage it? Is it all with guides? <laughs> well, I mean, these days I tend to have a guide with me, especially if I'm sort of making a, a documentary where you need to sort of have that. Uh, somebody to act as a translator but in my early days now I'd just go off for months on end um, and just kind of hope for the best which uh, you know there was a, a little bit of planning went on but but actually it was that serendipity it was that having a bit of trust and faith in the universe that, that kind of got me through and, um, and and I think that was a really positive thing. When does the I'm, I'm really curious by these wonderful people welcoming their you into their homes, Levison. When, where does the where does the hospitality end? And what I mean by that is, you know, you're saying that they're sort of honour bound to welcome you in and protect you from their neighbours yeah. and so on. Could you literally? And obviously, you're not going to do this, but could you literally just go over there and then spend your life in someone's house? Or would you? <laughs> is, is there like a clock on it? You know, you you have to have at this point. Well, I mean, you know, you've got to apply a bit of. Um common sense of these things but there is there is a really nice um thing that happens in india in um in the golden temple in amritsar which is the sort of the spiritual home of, of the sikh religion anyone from any religion or faith is welcome to enter the golden temple and stay for three nights three days and three nights for free and they will you know all the food is included nothing expected in return. And that that's a really nice thought. So I, I've tended to apply that principle throughout my life and, and never try to outstay my welcome. So um, when I left the army back in 2010, there was a period of about three years where, where I was sort of trying to establish myself as a writer and a photographer and a, and a guide and bringing all these sort of hobbies and passions and, and sort of boyhood dreams together where obviously I wasn't earning any money, so I was totally skinned. <laughs> I didn't. I certainly couldn't afford to pay London rent, um, and I was trying to save all my, you know, I, what little money I did have. I, I spent on a nice camera so that I could actually, you know, perfect my craft. So that didn't leave any money for rent. So I, I sort of what I'd do is I just spent three days on on one friend's sofa and then move on to another friend's sofa for another three days and, and applied that same <laughs> principle that I'd learned in India and went to the big loop in between my expeditions. So if I had two weeks in in the UK. I'd sort of do this round robin of of, of, of couch surfing, and and thankfully by sticking you know rigidly to that three day rule, I thankfully I don't think I burnt too many bridges. You see, I like that, and and I would feel almost more comfortable if that was a universal thing. If all these lovely people yeah. from the various different countries that have opened their doors to you, if everyone just knows it's only three days, you know, he's not <laughs> exactly. he's not here for nine months. You know, <laughs> this time next year he's not part of the family. It's just three days with this random stranger who's very charming and can speak English and all the rest of it. It's got. Some some lovely stories. It's just three days. Don't worry. I'd find it <laughs> difficult to square it away with the family. You know, so, someone knocks on the door. Yeah, probably. I, I, don't know. I don't know how long they're here for, but yes, they've had all the porridge. <laughs> it's sort of, sort of a strange one. Okay. So you had your gap year before university. You went to Nottingham University. Then you did your wild additional gap year where you hitchhiked. <laughs> Which sounds absolutely... Oh, that was gap year too, yeah. Yep, second gap year. Love it. It's a bit greedy on the gap years there, Levison. I mean, you've sort of doubled up there. That's fine. <laughs> at, at what stage did you then go army? This this is fun. I'm now going to go for the army because I can continue these wild adventures and, and serve the country and so on. What was the what was the draw to the army for you? Well, I'd always um, been interested in the army. My, my dad um, had been a reservist in, in the TA. My grandfather was in the army. He, he served in the Second World War in the Far East. But I think it was growing up on their stories, actually, that, that made me consider a career in the army. So um, it was quite interesting. By the time I went to Sandhurst in 2005, you know, I'd, I'd already walked across Afghanistan. So it was a bit of an odd one um, and a very different experience than the getting barked at by sort of, you know, sergeant majors on, on the parade square. But, you know, it was a key part of my own learning and it, it taught me a lot about humility and, um, and and you learn a lot of skills in the army. And actually it was, you know, I don't think I'd probably be doing what I'm doing now had I not been through that. Um so yeah, I spent five years in the in the Paras, and you know part of that was a, was a tour in Afghanistan. So the second time I went to Afghanistan was a very different experience. Yes, that must have been very peculiar. I mean, from going from I guess blending in as one of the locals, I would presume, in your your first experience yeah. to well showing up with a gun. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, uh, and obviously when you are in uniform, on um, then you are 
you know, you, you're offered a slightly different welcome, um, potentially, you know, but, you know, it, it, again, it was, it was an experience that I look back on and, and actually it was a very formative experience. I learned a lot about myself, about leadership, about managing a team. You know, I was 20, 25, I think, 26, and I was in charge of 30 blokes, you know, and we were um, day in, day out um, on the ground um, in some pretty, pretty tricky situations. But um, it's times like that that you learn to be, you know, when you're constantly alert for that period of time. Um, you know, you, you learn a lot about discipline, that's for sure. Yes. Well, I mean, I mean, so far, Levison, we've, we've almost made it sound like it's been easy. You've just breezed through it because people open their doors and it's not tough and all this kind of stuff. It was sort of glazed over your walk of the Nile, which is 4,250 miles and took you nine months and no one else has done it. You know, there's some, there's some pretty massive hardships that happen as well. So let's, let's kind of focus on that for a little bit because you've, you've seen some terrifying things. You've had your heart race pretty severely with fear from time to time as well, haven't you? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, both in, in Afghanistan when I was in the army, I had quite a few close shades out there. But um, but yeah, on my expeditions, you know, I've seen the whole spectrum really. And um, I think probably the closest I, I came to um, coming across was, was on my Himalayas journey back in 2015. Um, and actually, you know, people, people ask me what's, what's the most dangerous thing that happens on these expeditions. And I think people expect the sort of the, the sexy, glamorous stuff like getting, you know, by a crocodile or yes, charged yes. by a rhino and Absolutely. snakes and all that. Yeah, which, yeah, you yeah. know, Indiana Jones. <laughs> well, exactly. And they are, of course, all, um, you know, real threats. But actually, you know, they happen once in a blue moon and, and uh, the chances of something going wrong are pretty slim. Um the, it's, it's the more banal things that you've got to really be careful about. Um, and, and of course, road traffic accidents, you know, that's always going to be the most dangerous thing that you ever do, whether it's here or, or, um, or on expedition. And so the closest I came to, to, to death probably was, um, was on 20, it was in 2015. I was walking in layers and I, ironically on, on a walking expedition, it was one time I, I got into a taxi because we'd been booted out of this village by some, um, communist rebels who said, right, you're not staying here for the night. Oh, um, so not everyone's that uh, respectable. Uh, well, no, I mean, they, they, they were they were very polite about it, but they said there was nowhere to stay. So we had to go to the next village. It was already getting dark. So we, you know, I sort of flagged down a taxi and, and off we went. And, and just as we were going over the top of the mountain pass, um, the brakes failed in this car and literally went flying off, off the edge of this cliff in the dead of night into a uh, ravine. And... Um, yeah, but I mean, it was about a you know, I don't know, 150 meter drop, you know, sheer drop, oh, you know, into the forest, and the car bounced and rolled probably ten times. I mean, I was very, very lucky to survive. So that was a very close call, you know. And, and I, I was lucky to just get away with a broken arm and a few cracked ribs. But um, but yeah, that that I was pretty sure I was a, a goner then. How were the other people in the car? Well, luckily everybody survived. Thankfully, um, there was a lot of broken bones, and um, the driver was in a bad way. But, you know, it, it was just one of those things, you know, these things do happen. And it was an acute reminder that, um, you know, it's not always fun and games and there are always risks associated. And um, and often people say, well, well, why do you do it? You know, but for me, it's it's, it's more that, you know, it's, it's more than just a job. It's, it's a vocation. And, and so you have to accept that there are there are risks associated. Talk me through the aftermath of, of that of that crash, because that sounds hellish. And, and as you say, lucky to be alive, broken bones, broken arm, I think you said. Did you stay local in a local hospital, patch up and then just carry on? Or did you call time on it? What what happened then? Well, so I, I mean, I, I was in a very bad way. You know, the um, thankfully, some local villagers must have heard the call sort of bouncing down the mountain and um, came to our rescue. Um, so, we, you know, I was carried to a nearby village where there was a little clinic. So they put me in this clinic. I mean, it, it was pretty, you know, spit and sawdust place. There was sort of chickens running around the wards. Um, and they didn't have, they certainly didn't have the facilities to do anything about my broken arm. And it, and it actually took about three days to get rescued by helicopter because it was the um, monsoon season. So we couldn't get a, couldn't get a helicopter in there. So, and then by the time I got to Kathmandu, um, it was just after that big earthquake back in 2015. So all the hospitals were, we're in a bad way, you know, nobody could operate on his own. I wanted to fly back to London. So it was about a week before I managed to get surgery on my arm. Um, but once that was all fixed up, I, you know, I, I thought, oh, I can't heal now, I've got to crack on. So went right back to crash site, saw the car still there sort of 30 days later and uh, and then carried on walking. Um, and I think it's times like that when you really do have to sort of, you know, it's, it's kind of a test of resolve. Yes. 
Yes, well, I mean, but but how fortunate you were able to, I mean, albeit a week's delay, which I'm assuming sort of left your arm in a pretty nasty state and must have been incredibly painful for that week. It, it was pretty painful, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's vicious. Have you seen the driver since? Have you have you kind of checked in on him? I checked in on him, yeah. You know, he was, he was um, you know, he broke a lot of bones in in, in his body. Um, but yeah, he was he was just very fortunate to survive. So um, yeah, we, we, we sort of made sure that he was, um, you know, fixed up and, uh, and, and, you know, made sure that all of his hospital expenses are covered and, you know, thankfully he's all right. Gosh. But like a, like a true explorer, you carried on. I mean, 30 days later, you're back. Wow. I mean, that is, there must've been part of you, Levison, that was kind of saying, I'm a bit nuts. Well, you know, I, I sort of went, started on this path, um, when I left the army, it was either this or, or get a get a real job, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, I, I I was sort of, I, you know, I'd made my mind up. I, you know, this was my boyhood dream. I, I'd always wanted to to be an explorer, to write books, to to, to be a photographer. And it, you know, I just feel incredibly lucky and, and privileged that I've been able to bring all these passions together and turn it into a, a sort of viable. Um, career you know and, and so there is a juicy that comes with that you can't just give up at the uh, the earliest opportunity or when things go wrong you've got to accept that that is part of the deal and um so that's how i reconcile it and uh yeah and, and that, that's kind of me going forward you know I, I, it's what it's part of my dna are there moments because you've done so much and I, i've had the privilege of talking to a few explorers and 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 characters sort of similar to you that that, that do these wonderful adventures and they often say, whilst you're on your expedition, it's often thinking about what am I doing next that gets you through the really rough moments. Because every expedition has one. You're exhausted or you've yeah. got to eat something that really no one else would, would want to even look at or smell, uh, etc. Are there some, I'm sort of keen to explore how you mentally get through the dark challenges, which, which must come quite often. They do. I mean, I guess what motivates it comes in twofold really. the first thing is when you're in a remote area when you're isolated when you're plodding on you, you you're you're tired you know you're hungry you're not really thinking about the big things you're not thinking about the sort of uh, the meaning of life at this stage you're really all you're thinking about is where's the next meal coming from where can i get my next drink of water where can i get my head down for the night it's the basic things and actually it's a very it's quite a healthy way of thinking because it's kind of you're back at primal survival mode it's what humans have kind of evolved to be you know when we're running around the african plains you know chasing after you know mammoths and whatnot it, it, that's kind of what you you're thinking about you're in full survival mode and, and so you don't really have time for the, the the big pondering question you don't have time to get sad or depressed or anything else um you're thinking about the present moment and and that's quite a good thing but, but you're right there are times when you it's a really hard slog um and so what got me through it, particularly on the Nile journey, which was probably the most mentally challenging, just because I had no idea how long it was going to take me. And, you know, I walked across the whole Sahara Desert. You know, it, it was times like that when I, was, I just looked around. It was going back to what we were talking about before about the hospitality. There was me doing this expedition. But there was, you know, there's people who live in some of the most austere conditions, you know, what we would call absolute poverty. But you know what? They were... It's so incredibly hospitable. I, I just had to sort of slap myself across the face and say, hang on, I've got no right to, to be moody or sad. You know, these people live in uh, pretty, pretty shocking circumstances. And yet here they are welcoming me with open arms. They would rather, they'd literally rather die than, than, you know, than see me go without a drink of water. Even if it was their last bit of food, they would give it to me. And so it's times like that you think, hang on, I've got literally nothing to complain about. And, and it does, it makes you a bit, you know, it makes you think about that and, and puts everything in perspective. Yes, you're so right. The perspective is everything, isn't it? I mean, I was going to ask you about the sort of things that, that are served up to you, because of course, it's, it's, it's not like you get a menu when someone welcomes you into their home. You know, you're presented with what you're presented with, I'm assuming, and they don't sort of say, do you, do you like fish? Would you like some chicken? It's, it's whatever gets put down. Have there been times where you've, you've had a plate of something you've not, or a bowl or whatever, you've no idea what it is, but you kind of thought to myself, oh, well, I've got to eat it, but oh, Oh yeah, no, plenty of times, plenty of times, and, I, and I'm certain that they do, do it just for a joke sometimes. I mean, I was, I was in a, I was in um, in, the, in the mountains on the Tajikistan and Afghan border, and you know, and these guys they're called the, the, the Kyrgyz 
tribe and they're the sort of descendants of Genghis Khan's sort of marauding armies. They still live a pretty medieval existence. They live in these yurts, um, herding yaks. I mean, to, apart from the odd AK-47 and the occasional sort of mobile phone, there is, you know, it's no different than the, the sort of 14th century. It really is pretty basic out there. Um, but they, but they, you know what they do? They, they love a good joke and they have a very sort of funny sense of humor where the guest is treated to the delicacies. Of, of whatever animal it is that they killed. Oh, so man. they serve up the, the goat's brains, the eyeballs, the, you know, whatever else. And they are offered to you on a, on a, on a plate saying, oh, you're the honored guest. Here you go. And of course, none of them are touching it. They're up there having the nice loins, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> and, what, and you just dive in? Okay, thanks. Well, you kind of do, yeah. You kind of have to because it's, it's kind of show. It's, it's a bit of a show and there's a bit of theater around it. And um you have to be seen to be playing the game. Yeah. Oh, my word. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to be, I'm going to ask this delicately, Levison, but how are your guts? I mean, can you, can you, <laughs> can you stomach anything? Well, you know what? On the Nile journey, which is nine months, you know, I'd, I'd walked for eight of those months through Rwanda, Tanzania, Uganda, Sudan, and I didn't get ill once. And uh, it was only actually when I crossed into Egypt and stayed, it was like, I just got to Aswan, which is a bit pretty touristy place. Having walked across the whole Sahara Desert, you know, I'd been roughing it the whole time, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to stay in a nice hotel. So I stayed <laughs> in the, the Moven Pick Hotel, went to the breakfast buffet, and that was it. I was in turmoil. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, not, it's not necessarily the street food that gets you in the end. It's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, the other stuff. Do you know, I wonder if that's, uh, I wonder if that was your body kind of going, well, we do have a toilet now, so we can actually rest, <laughs> you know. Perhaps, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, mate, I mean, the certain things you just kind of think, yeah, I, I mean, I love lots of the sound of this, but then there's the practical nature. You know, I, I once uh, I once made a documentary with some people that had rode across the Atlantic, and I was in awe of them until they showed me some photographs from the midpoint when it got rough, and they were like, yeah, we, we couldn't turn back because we were halfway there, but this is... Well, exactly. This is what the wound was. <laughs> and this is, and you could kind of go, crikey. Because like I say, you must, I mean, are you a bit of a first aid expert as well? Because I'm assuming you'd have to administer lots of different things to yourself, blisters and, and scrapes and so on. Yeah, you become a bit of an expert in those sorts of things. Um, I remember I was in Uganda and there's, there's something called a chigger, which is a, a little sort of parasite that digs under your um, toenails. It, it's from like sand flies. And, um, uh, but it can be quite. It can actually be fatal if it's left untreated. It can cause sepsis and, and this, this and that. So, um, uh, they, and it's very common out there. But um, you have to chop them off with a razor blade. And um, mm. so I got my guide boss. I mean, I, I was you know it was a pretty miserable sort of experience having your having your guide having to like dig around under your toenail with a razor blade. I mean, oh. that was that was pretty grim. Oh. Um, oh. Yeah. So I didn't like that. Um, but yeah, I've had you know dengue fever. Uh, well, you know, that was an absolute horror show. I mean, I had 10 days that I just can't account for. I was just had terrible fever. I was sweating. I just don't remember. I was completely delirious for 10 days. Yes. Strangely enough, I myself have had dengue fever and it's, it's hideous. Mm. Hideous. It's grim. Yeah. Yeah. You, you <laughs> sort of lose yourself in many different ways, don't you? You do. Mm, no, I, let's not even go down that avenue, Lewis. It's, it's, it's hell. You're listening to the Andy J podcast, and we really appreciate having you here with us. If you're enjoying the show, why not leave us a lovely review and perhaps five stars and subscribe wherever you're listening, as it really does help. The Andy J podcast. I also have another friend who's an explorer, and he's he's told me about some of the crazy traditions that he's had to do. For example, and I'm not asking you to stitch yourself up here, but for example, he's told me about the African nosepipe, which made him hallucinate for, for four days or whatever. Have you had, have you had sort of wild cultural experiences like that as well? Yeah, there's been a few. I mean, you know, you get when you stay with tribes in the jungle in the Amazon, there's various sort of initiation ceremonies, and uh, I mean, in in South Sudan, I stayed with a tribe called the Mundari. And um, for them, cows are everything. They're their currency, they're their dowry. It's a sort of form of wealth. They, they, they love them to bits. When, when a child is born, they're given a cow guardian, which is their sort of surrogate mother. Oh. And they literally, the kids will drink milk straight from the others. And because the rivers are so full of crocodiles, they don't like to swim in the rivers or bathe in the rivers. So they, they will actually have a cow shower and, and they will brush, it, brush their teeth, wash their hair, from the back end of the cow. Um, oh and, uh, and of course, when I stayed with them, they insisted that I follow suit. 
<laughs> I, I, I drew the line at brushing my teeth in, in, in cow wee, though. <laughs> how, how are you when you go on a countryside hike in the UK now? Listen, do you, when you smell a cow in a field, you think, oh, I could get clean. <laughs> Brings back memories. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, happy days. And, th- and then, of course, you've had the, the really dark side, which is which is human beings sometimes are, are the problem. I believe you were once taken hostage at gunpoint. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I've been in some pretty tricky situations. But, but one, once I was in South Sudan, it was just before independence. So there was, it was a pretty fragile state. So I can understand the tensions. But um, I was trying to, we were actually working with the Sudanese, South Sudanese um government to try and promote it as a tourism destination. And so we were doing the first proper descent of that part of the river and whitewater rafts. But I don't think the message had got passed down to some of the tribal leaders. So we were we were sort of paddling down this river in a very, very remote part of the, the, the jungle. And um, next thing we know, they were firing shots over our heads and there was all these guys running running along the banks of the river with guns and machetes and spears. And then they were chasing after it. We couldn't stop, of course, because it's quite fast flowing. And um, they, they, they were chasing after the dugout canoes. I mean, it was literally a scene out of Indiana Jones. And when they did catch up with us, you know, they weren't, too, they weren't best pleased. So they dragged us out of the boats, lined us up against the wall, guns in the backs of their heads. And I thought, oh dear, you know, we need to, we need to get out of this situation quickly. And, and one lesson I'd learned from the army was, you know, you do these courses that, that tells you what to do in sort of kidnap situations and the, the key really is to, to get to form a bond to form a connection to have your captor look at you as a human being rather than just something to shoot you know so you have to establish eye contact you have to establish some sort of rapport and find some common ground and the one thing i'd learned from my african travels is always carry a packet of cigarettes and, you know i don't smoke myself but um it's good to have them handy just to dish them out and actually it was that Simple act of offering somebody a ciggy. Um, he he looked me in the eye, and he, I could see him looking at his boss. Like, and it, but luckily, his sort of desire for a ciggy won out, and he, he took it off me. And then suddenly, there was some sort of connection. And before we knew it, we were sort of having a bit of a joke and a laugh. And then the boss came over; he wanted a cigarette, and then it, the, the situation was diffused, and we thankfully got away with it. But um, moments like that that you do, uh, you do, you sort of think, oh dear, this, this might be it. Good heavens. I mean, I wonder what happens when everyone's vaping, Levison. That, then it's a certain, <laughs> certain, I, th- I think it might be a while to catch on in, in <laughs> South Sudan. I mean, what would have happened if you hadn't had the cigarettes with you? Uh, well, who knows? Did you, I mean, knows? Did, you, did you genuinely think, this is it, they're, they're going to shoot me? Well, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't think you can let yourself think that. You have to always hope for the best and... I mean, that's been my motto in these travels, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And, and so hence having a pack of fags, uh, you know, just for those sorts of occasions. Wow. Crikey. How do you choose what you're going to do? Because you, we've talked about the Nile and the Himalayas, of course. You've, you've walked from Mexico to Colombia, all of Central America, the Arabian Peninsula, Botswana, following the elephants, which was glorious, by the way. Aren't they amazing? <laughs> what majestic, what majestic creatures. Uh, I mean, yeah. how, how do you decide? And we'll, we'll come back to the elephants in a minute because I need to hear about them because I love them. How do you decide what you're going to do? Is, is somebody advising you? Because obviously now you are a TV star. You're an explorer and a TV star. So therefore, I imagine there's some consultation with audience mm. research or the broadcaster, what they would like to see, what they, how do you fancy this? H- how does it happen? Well, I've been very lucky in that so far, you know, they've been, these have all been my ideas that I've sort of pitched to broadcasters and, and um They've been taken up, and and they were all sort of inspired, really, by my those early travels I did when I was a student, you know, and visiting places I had a genuine interest in. I I studied history at university and did my you know dissertation in the Great Overland Journey. So I studied the the, the big pilgrimages to Jerusalem, the the Silk Road, Marco Polo, you know, even even the more modern day pilgrimages of the Hippie Trail in the sixties. So it was. It was those sort of journeys that fascinated me from a very young age. And so I've managed to sort of somehow translate that into following in the footsteps of those early ideas. And I think there's something very simple in taking a geographical phenomenon, whether that's a great big river or a mountain range or a part of the, you know, a region part of the world, and walking it. You know, there's something very simple about putting one foot in front of the other. It's very relatable to an audience. Mm. You know, I, I love other forms of transport. You know, I'm a keen motorcyclist and I, uh, you know, I, I've done my time cycling and 
rafting and all sorts of things. But the act of walking, I think, is just it's universal, you know, more or less. You know, most most people do walk and uh, and and um, enjoy it to some extent. And and obviously, you know, not everyone necessarily wants to walk for you know five thousand miles, but there is something that people think at the back of their oh, I wonder, maybe I could do that. And I think that does translate. And, and also, when you're traveling on foot, you're exposing yourself to the same dangers and vulnerabilities as the local population, which kind of engenders a bit of trust. You're not just a tourist in the back of a safari wagon driving through these places taking yes. photos. There is no escape. And therefore, you form a bond, a connection. There's no, you can't just run away if you don't want to talk to somebody. You have to. And so it's those forced connections and interactions that really form the basis of my journeys. It's not, I don't walk for the physical challenge necessarily. I'm not interested in breaking world records. That, that's not why I do this. It's, it's, the, it's the, the real, it's just the, the day-to-day slowest pace, really, that, that enables you to form these connections and make great friends along the way. No, I mean, I love it. It's a great philosophy. And, and you say sort of lots of this is, is drawn on your, your love and passion for history and, and things that you've read about, explorers that you admire that have been there, done that, and, and, and kind of inspired you as a youngster. I wonder if you've thought, Levison, about going even further back in the history books. I'm thinking ancient Greek. Could you do sort of, I don't know, the, the trials of Hercules sort of thing, that, that sort of adventure, paths like that? Yeah, I mean, why not? You know, I, I, I love reading about, um, you know, Greek mythology and, um, and, and Alexander the Great, of course. And, and so, no, I, I'm fascinated by, by cultures all around the world and what, what kind of unites them and the commonalities. I mean, one of the fascinating things I discovered in Pakistan on my Himalayas journey is a little, little town called Taxila, and it was actually established by Alexander the Great. Um, on his when he was sort of on his furthest push into the Indian subcontinent, and it was his last sort of place that he built before he then turned back. Um, and in this this these ruins, you get these in the middle of Pakistan. You've got these ancient Greek columns, and lots of they they found lots of um, Greek coins. And you know it, it's it's an amazing fusion of east and west. Um, where on the one side of the coin you've got the head of Alexander, on the other side of the coin you've got one of those Indian humpback cows, mm. and you'll and, and it, they actually were the, 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 the Greeks that stayed behind to man the um, to man the fortress were became Buddhists, and so there's this weird fusion of Buddhism and Greek mythology that you find in the middle of Pakistan, which is a very bizarre experience. And there's these statues of Buddhas that have been on Earth where they are very heavily bearded, very European features, wearing Greek togas, and it goes to show that for thousands of years, there has been this travel and trade between the continents, between different cultures, and, and it's not a new thing. And so it's, it's definitely, again, goes back to putting everything in perspective. I mean, you've, you've seen so many of these fascinating fusions. I mean, you, you must have witnessed so many cultures that are unfamiliar to us, so many different sort of extreme religions as well. Where's, where's your sort of stance on all this? What sort of spirituality do you take on? Well, I think what I've learned is that what unites and you know joins people and communities together far outweighs that which divides them. And actually, most of the, most of the religions all say the same thing. You know, they say it in different ways, but the fact remains that um, even even when you go to India, where there's you know millions of gods and in, in the Hindu culture, you know, actually, it's it all says the same thing. And it's about respect. It's about love. It's about uh, treating people right. And and you know, being faithful to yourself ultimately, and, uh, and having a belief in in something beyond um, the the day to day, and so that's something I've, I've tried to take on the best bits of the religions and faiths that I've encountered, and um, and that's what kind of makes life interesting is taking on other people's perspectives, and you know, just because you can come up with a different background, different culture. Um, doesn't mean you can't learn something from those people, and and I I try and take everything with a, with an open mind, and um, uh, and hopefully take like I say take on the the bits that that um, that work. I think that's a lovely thinking. Yeah, I mean you've you've experienced it and been exposed to it, so you can you can draw on your various different experiences. Levison, when you're being taken in or meeting these wonderful individuals from various different corners of the globe, they obviously must have a curiosity about you as well. What's the what's the sort of most common thing that you get asked? 
<laughs> well, most people ask me where I'm going because they, you know, <laughs> they see this white bloke walking through the village. You know, it's very difficult to explain to a villager in Uganda that you're walking to Egypt because most of these kids in the villages, they might have heard of Egypt, you know, perhaps in it on TV or in a geography, but they they don't really put two and two together and think that it's the end of this great river, you know, 4,000 miles downstream. And, and and if you try and explain that, they just don't believe you. They're like, nah, that's, you're, you're joking. So I, even saying that you're going to the next city, you know, if I was in southern Uganda saying I was walking to Kampala, they all thought I was mad. So I had to just say I'm walking to the next village. And even that, you know, even if it's 10 miles away, they'd say, oh, why don't you just take a car? <laughs> so that's oh, it's a very good question, really. Brilliant. Well, no, fair enough. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating because you sort of think, well, are they going to ask you about the Premier League? You know, what football team do you support? So all that kind of thing. You just sort of... Well, that, that is... Uh, I mean, you go... I mean, everyone supports Arsenal in, in Uganda, so you, you don't even need to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, it's more what they're, what they're kind of curious about you. But yeah, just the journey, why you on it, I think I think makes a huge amount of sense. I love it. Look, I'll forget about this if I don't bring it up again. I'm, we've touched on the elephants. You've been in this unique position of... of being so close and following them on such a remarkable journey. Just just share some insights of, of these amazing creatures, would you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've always loved elephants um, ever since I was a kid. I remember going to a, um, an art exhibition by the late David Shepherd, who was an incredible, incredibly talented wildlife artist, um, and thinking, one day I'm going to get out there and, you know, be a, take, you know, draw pictures of elephants. And I, I never quite made it as an artist, but going there as a photographer and, and getting really up close and personal was an incredible experience and a, and a lifelong, you know, uh, sort of ambition of mine. So I walked across Botswana following the Great Migration. I mean, Botswana has probably a third of all African elephants within its borders. It's got a huge elephant population, 120,000. Um, I say huge, it's still, you know, it's dropped drastically, of course, mm. um, over the over the decades and, the, you know, the elephants are are endangered and, and uh, you know, I, I wanted to capture that. I wanted to show, you know, what these magnificent animals um, are all about. And they're, they're so intelligent. They're, they're so clever in how they communicate, uh, in how they um, form bonds, in how they, their social structure. And, and I learned just a lot about, um, about these amazing creatures. Um, did you know they can, they can communicate over vast distances using, there's a very low frequency grumble in their larynx that gets transmitted across the, the land and it's picked up by sensors in other herds' feet. So they can actually pass messages on to other herds, which is why in some war zones in places like Angola or Sudan or Somalia, elephant herds are passing messages of danger onto each other. And so literally within a couple of days, the whole country was cleared out of elephants because they all got the message and disappeared off to the neighboring countries. And it's, it's absolutely incredible the way that they, 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 they think they communicate and they're known to grieve, you know, they, when, when an elephant dies, herds are known to go back and, and, you know, sniff the bones of their, their matriarch and, and sort of pay their respects. I mean, it's an incredible, um, incredible insight. And I was very lucky to be able to go and spend time walking in the wild across the Okavango Delta. Um, in the company of a, uh, of a guy called Carney, who's a sand bushman who just knew everything about about them. It was great. Gosh, I mean, how remarkable and, and what a privileged situation to be in. I mean, I know you had to endure great hardship in order to do it, but I imagine worth every second. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's a beautiful landscape. And um, yeah, I mean, I just hope that, you know, with, with the, the pandemic having shut off the borders, you know, that, that's been a real... Uh, challenge particularly in the world of conservation of course because the the world's eyes are not focused on um you know the problems that are happening in places like Botswana or across Africa which is um you know the challenge that face not just elephants but all of all of the the, the, the wildlife out there which of course is, is habitat loss you know the the destruction of you know natural environments and uh, forests and um it's it's only getting worse sadly so i hope that we can we can get back to you know because i think tourism is, is a real boom in in, in helping uh, to promote uh, some of these conservation initiatives yes absolutely and, and you have to keep banging the drum leveson because you've got the you've mm. got the profile you've you've got the the exposure now so so please keep shouting as loud as you can to, to sort of protect these wonderful animals because i think you're doing all the right things and, and you're you're in that unique position where you can make a difference and that must that must give you a sense of responsibility i suppose yeah, it really does. You know, I've been given this um, this platform, and I think it's, it is my responsibility to to try and um, 
hopefully inspire people to, to take up the call themselves to to do for everybody to do what they can to um, to ensure the survival not just of elephants but but of, of the you know the natural world because it's really important because um, uh, you know it, it's a one way street and we have to we, now we've all got a responsibility and an opportunity to to preserve what left. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Levison, obviously, we've got to talk about the book. I'd just like to touch on very briefly the, the, the sort of more immediate timeline of, of what you've been going through, because, of course, we've we've all had this bizarre circumstance. You've touched on the pandemic and everyone's gone through this really weird transition of strangeness. It, it started... I'm not a hundred percent sure of the timeline for you. I think it was just before the pandemic. You, you personally had your own challenges with a stalker, which, which must have been very confusing and, and very disturbing. I, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Well, it was during the pandemic, actually. Yeah, and um, you know, this the, the individual who um, who sort of you know crossed a few lines, and um, yeah, it was. I mean, I, I know the pandemic sort of hit hit everybody hard, but. Um, yeah, that that was a particularly challenging time, uh, you know, for me having to deal with that whilst whilst in lockdown. And um, yeah, it was it was tough. And I just hope that the, you know, the individual concerned got got some help that that, that they needed. Really, yeah. I mean, it's a very. I, I appreciate you probably won't want to discuss that in detail, so I'm not going to go into detail with you. But but just just the outlines of it. It sounds very unusual because. The lady in question was a doctor, not the sort of person you sort of think, oh, well, there's your, your typical stalker, although I don't know what a typical stalker is, to be fair. Um, and I believe she also ha- had some time behind bars. Well, yes. Yes, she did. I mean, uh, and that was, you know, the fact that she was a doctor was, was why I sort of had contact with police in the first instance, because it wasn't the sort of behaviour that was being displayed. It wasn't appropriate for somebody who is, has, you know, lives under their responsibility. So, um yeah, and, and she sort of didn't didn't um, abide by the the rules and restrictions that were placed upon her. So she ended up um, with a with a pretty pretty hefty prison sentence. So um, yeah, but like I said, hopefully she got the, the help that she needed. Yes, absolutely. But but then, unfortunately for you, you yourself continue to have quite quite a tough time in lockdown. Uh, you had a, a a gorgeous little puppy that that sadly didn't survive, which must have been absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, and that that was that was an awful experience. I yeah, I had a beautiful dog, uh, Byron, who's a, um, a Rhodesian Ridgeback. He was an incredible puppy, but sadly caught um caused parasite, something called lungworm, which um, you know he was vaccinated against. And um, yeah, it, it was uh, it was something that was sadly missed in the sort of um, the diagnosis when when I took him to the vet, and um, he he tragically passed away. So that that really that hit me very hard. That was just before Christmas, and then literally the the day before I am. Um, I broke my ankle as well. I was, I was doing a bit of uh, paramotoring and um, that's been a sort of bit of a hobby of mine and uh, came in with a rough landing and uh, broke my ankle. So yeah, I ended up spending about six weeks in a wheelchair after that. So it's, it's kind of just just about getting back to normal now, um, six months on. But um, hopefully that was the, you know, the end of the sort of spell of bad luck. And um, yeah, definitely feeling a lot more positive now and um and actually you know lockdown gave me the chance to sit down and uh actually write this book which ultimately is is kind of a reflection on 20 years of travels and it's it's kind of the lessons that i've learned and and it gave me it was quite a cathartic experience it gave me the the opportunity to really think about you know the themes and the, the, the the big takeaways that i learned from from some of some of these places and people that i that i met along the way and um Hopefully that translates not just you know what not sort of not a guidebook on how to be an explorer necessarily. It's more what those lessons can teach people in ordinary daily life and and how it applies to business or maybe you're transitioning from one career to another or if you're a, a student uh, you know looking for a job or or you know other my friends aren't people who've been in the army and leaving and don't know what comes next so it, it's kind of wrapping all of those ideas into one and so it was a real it was a challenge because you know all my previous books have been about specific journeys um or you know one theme where this yes. is this is a real eclectic mix so uh, i really enjoyed it well this is i mean this is really fascinating actually Levison. you've got nine best-selling books and then and then in a way i hope you don't mind me describing it like this mm. because I, I i'm i'm sort of asking rather than saying but in a way you've you've pulled on so much knowledge and and experience to, to almost create a sort of self-help book is is that a fair <laughs> way do, do you know what i mean? I, know, I think you're right no i, I mean I, 
I, I mean, I hate that term, but you're right. It is, it is ultimately. I, I prefer the word smart thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm not a massive fan of which, <laughs> the self It depends on which, uh, which I'm trying to get it placed on the right shelf in, uh, in, the, in the bookshop, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, want but, yeah, it, you want it in adventure rather than mindfulness or whatever. Yeah. Well, no, but you know, it does actually, it, it kind of, it, it crosses those boundaries and it's not, it, this isn't one genre. It's, um, and actually, I, I don't want it to sit in the travel section because all my other books are in the travel section. This, this is a lot more broader actually. And, um, and I think what this book does, it's not just my story, but it's a bit theory and, and there's lots of examples of historical figures, people from industry, from business, from sports, you know, astronauts. Uh, there are stories of other explorers, of course, but but it's a lot bigger than that. And um, and I've really tried to distill the key lessons. And there's like there's eleven lessons that I have honed it down to, everything from the importance of enthusiasm all the way to, you know, how to build a cohesive team and then some of um, the key things, the secrets of leadership that I learned from my days in the army. So there's there's a real mix in that. And I really hope that people will will enjoy reading some of the stories that, that kind of didn't make it into the other books because maybe they weren't appropriate or they didn't fit. But um, but, but they, they've all got a point. They've all got a lesson in there somewhere. So, um, yeah, I hope some people will enjoy it. Can we just talk about the chapters, Levison? Because... You are a brilliant photographer. You know this. You've won all sorts of awards, and and you are a brilliant photographer. And, <laughs> Thank and you. I'm thinking, work with me here because I think this works. If we just take the chapter headings for each of the chapters, yeah, we've got a 2022 calendar. And I'm, what I'm saying is, you get a great photograph from various different parts of the world that you've taken, yeah, and then you just use. Each one of your, okay, you're going to need one more because there's 11 chapters, but nonetheless, we'll, we'll, we'll come up with December at another time. But let's take, for example, chapter four, back yourself with a smile. I mean, that, yeah. January, February, March, April, May. There you go. There's May. There's May. That's well, my birth month. <laughs> there you go. You know, then we've got chapter six, build your tribe. Again, there, I mean, there's a photograph of the elephants, isn't there, for that one. And I, I think this is a great idea. Just, we, should, we should get working on this. Well, just see what away. Mean, it? Because, each, <laughs> because each one is, I mean, just the chapter titles themselves are little bite-sized pieces of lovely advice. Carry on and Ooh. grit your teeth. I love that. <laughs> I mean, obviously you go into great detail, proper detail, and you explain it properly in the book. We haven't got time to do that, but we can go through the chapters. And yes, I'm being a bit glib about calling it a, a calendar, but you see what I mean? There's a, they're empowering statements, these ones. Admit when you're yeah. lost. No one ever likes to admit when they're lost. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's a, these are very strong things. Conquer your own Everest. What's that one about? Come on. Well, exactly. I mean, all of these titles were, I mean, I played with these titles for so long until I get the perfect sort of idea and to sum up the chapter because, um, you know, conquering your own Everest is ultimately um, a play on words from what Edmund Hillary sort of explained. You know, you don't conquer the mountain, but yourself. And I think that's the whole point. You know, the exploration isn't necessarily about the physical challenge. It's not necessarily about breaking records. It's about conquering your own fears. And yourself, and ultimately, we, we we create our own boundaries. We set our own limits. And what I'd like to do is hopefully encourage people to see beyond that, to push your own boundaries, to have the courage to do things that you perhaps didn't think that you were capable of. And and this is what this book is all about. You see, and there's the little bit that goes at the bottom of of the day numbers. You know, <laughs> there we go. Wednesday the third, and so on. You've got a little paragraph from you. There's, I can see it working, Leveson. What do you reckon? There we go. It'll be a stocking filler, won't it? <laughs> I'm serious. Lead from the front. I, I mean, this is terrific. Be curious. Do what scares you. Know yourself. All of these, they're great little I'll lessons. I'll speak to my publisher's merchandise department immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, if you had to have one on a mug that you wake up to each morning, let's let's go even better than this, Levison. All right, let, work with me here. You can choose one your favourite photograph that you've ever taken, okay, that's on a wraparound mug. And then in the base of the mug, as you finish your cup of tea, your cup of coffee, there's just a few words of wisdom that you see as you finish that to power you through the day. And we're choosing one of your, one of your chapter headings. Yeah. What do you, what's the image that you choose and what's the, what are the words? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I like chapter three because this underpins everything. Do what scares you because it's about courage. It's about facing your fears. And, you know, there's a great, one of my favorite quotes by, um, by the philosopher Joseph Campbell was, 
in the cave you fear to enter lies the treasure you seek. And I think that sums it up. You know, you've got to face those demons. You've got to push yourself. You've got to, you've got to really sort of go into some dark places sometimes in order to, to, to sort of see the light, so to speak. And I know that probably got a bit deep for a Saturday morning, but there we go. No, I love it. <laughs> but I think that's, that's, uh, that's been my motto in life. And um, I'm sure I've got lots of, lots of photographs of, uh, of that. I mean, I'm looking at one, um, you know, one right now, which is of the, uh, the tribe that I mentioned where you get weed on by a cow, the Mandari <laughs> tribe. It's a, it's a very biblical scene of the, the smoke rising from the campfires. Um, all these guys sort of standing there with their spears and with the cows silhouetted against the, a pretty moody sky. So that, that's my photo on my wall at, at home. That's lovely. In the cave you fear to enter lies the treasure you seek is a fabulous quote as well. I mean, <laughs> brilliant. That's absolutely inspiring. Oh, I knew this was going to be a good chat. And I love, <laughs> I love that we've tangented into the, into the quite deep stuff because it's important. I mean, on a very basic level, we've mentioned your age. It's, it's 40 next. How do you feel? It is the big one. <laughs> oh, well, I think that's, that's, the, that's the cave I fear to enter right there. <laughs> does, it, does it scare you? It does. It terrifies me. <laughs> well, yeah. What's the concern? I mean, is there, is there a part of you, you're, you're, a, you're on the dating scene, you're, you're sort of, as, as far as I understand it, you're not engaged or anything, you, you, you don't have any children at this point, you're kind of... You're, you're not yet, this, not yet. You're reaching this 40 landmark. Is there part of you, I mean, everyone of you and I are similar in age, everyone sort of of our sort of age kind of always thought of 40 as being really old and... You know, I know, yeah. Have a thousand kids by then and just get getting ready to retire and everything. How are you, how are you personally feeling about all this? Um, yeah, I, mean, I think if you'd have asked me when I was sort of 20 years old, I, I would have just assumed that by the age of 40, I'd be sort of sitting there with my slippers sort of, uh, you know, with, 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 with kids running around, but hasn't, hasn't happened yet. Um, but yeah, no, look, I, I would, I would love to have a family one day. Um, hopefully, you know, not, not too far, not in the too far distant future, but, um, yeah, no, I, I do see the appeal. I mean, I, I guess I've just been a bit busy, you know, the last decade or so <laughs> running, running around the world. And, uh, you know, that, that does, isn't always uh, the most conducive, um, you know, career to, to settling down. So, but, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe soon. Fair enough. I mean, that, that sounds almost like you've, you've met someone. Uh, well, no, um, I'm going to say maybe soon. I'm going to go you know, meet the right person, first, I suppose. <laughs> yes, it, it's not that simple, Levison. I mean, it's, <laughs> can't just go. No, I appreciate that. That's why, that's why I'm where I am. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and to be fair, you know, once you've once you've got your own little tribe, running off to meet others is is going to be very very difficult. Yeah, I'm sure it makes life a, a bit trickier for sure. Um, but you know what, I, I I've got no regrets. Um, I've been very, you know what, this this is quite funny. I've, I've actually got 47 to date children named after me, believe it or not. Hey, um, hey. <laughs> I get I get these people sort of on Facebook saying they've named their, their, their kids after me. And I've, I know I've got two in Uganda. There's one in Vietnam, a couple in Australia. So I've, I've already got my little global tribe and I get sort of lots of updates on social media of these kids growing up. I think the eldest one's about seven now. They're not mine, but, uh, you know, it's sort of a, it's a start, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's, hey, listen, absolutely. You've got to start somewhere. And 47 is a great number to, to crack on with. Just very quickly, Levison, what's what's the next adventure for you? Because there's some catching up to do now, isn't there? There's definitely some catching up to do, yeah. Um, to be honest, I don't know. I mean, it, it depends on when we can escape, really, when they open the borders. So um, I'm, I'm definitely chomping at the bit to... Um, to go and to go and get away into the wilds again, uh, quite when that is, you know, it, your guess is, is as good as mine. So uh, I've got a few ideas bubbling away. I can't give them away because uh, I'm sure any other explorers listening will probably want to pinch them. So I, I have to sort of, uh, you know, keep my mouth shut. <laughs> but I'm imagining it involves some kind of wild adventure, lots of amazing photographs, and hopefully a TV series out of it as well. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> I love that idea that adventurers are nicking each other's trips. Oh, they do. Yeah, you've got to be, you've got to be careful. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Levison, you've been great company. I've, I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Good luck with the book. I mean, I know we, we're not going self-help, but I think the ability to, to kind of be your best is what this book can help you achieve, isn't it? Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, it really is. So, yeah, thanks for having me on, Andy. Hey, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it and I look forward to catching up again soon when you are allowed to talk about the next adventure. Be that going away, doing something wonderful or 
Yep, we're pregnant. Whichever. <laughs> Brilliant. See you soon. Mate. Cheers. Take care. <laughs> Thanks right. very much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. The Andy J Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.